Welcome to episode 274 of Live Happy Now. This is Paula Phelps, and this week we're talking about acceptance. Accepting the difficult events in our lives is a key part of our well-being. Acceptance allows us to cultivate a sense of calm that allows us to better deal with stress. Right now, we have had to accept a lot of uncertainty, and today's guest has spent the last several years practicing a method of acceptance that we all can learn from. Ukureru is a Japanese principle of acceptance, and today's psychologist Scott Haas talks about his book, Why Be Happy, which looks at how this practice works, what it can do for us, and how you can implement it in your own life. Scott, welcome to uh, Live Happy Now. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, we had to have you on because you have a book with a name that is with a title that almost seems contrary to what we talk about at Live Happy Now because it asks, why be happy? So I wanted to find out, first of all, what's the short answer to that? Well, I mean, it's an approach to happiness that's very different than what we think of as happiness, say, in the States or in, in a general sense, West, the Western world. So we think of our own happiness here as personal, and we pursue it, and it's in our constitution, you know, the, the right to pursue happiness. Whereas in Japan, it's not really thought of that way. It's thought of as, what can I do to accept the situation as it is in order to either live with it or to make changes? It's not about your own happiness. It's about the happiness of your family, the happiness of your community. And it's not as if the Japanese have cornered the market on that. I mean, certainly in the States, we have a lot of happiness in our communities and our religious institutions and so on, but their baseline is not about personal happiness. So why be happy when others are unhappy? What can you do to make someone else's day a little bit better? Now this is, It's an interesting concept, and it's one that is called, I'm going to let you pronounce it. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> so I'm not Japanese, and I'm going to do the best I can. So I would say yukeiru, although my Japanese friends, if they were to be listening to them, say, oh, Scott, that's wrong. That's not how you say it. So it's, it's either yukeiru or yukeiru, depending on whether it's a noun or a verb. And in a rough sense, it means acceptance, depending on who you're saying it to and where you're saying it. And where did you first start? discovering this and how did you begin studying it? So I started going to Japan for the first time in my life in 2002. I had come across Japanese novels when I was a teenager and Japanese movies when I was a teenager and I really liked them a lot but I kind of dropped it for a long time and a pretty famous chef in New York invited me to join him. He was going there for a promotional trip for Lost in Translation And he dragged me kicking and screaming to Japan. I had no interest in going at all. But he took me there, and I started to see how people behave there that's very different than here. And the idea was when you were with people there to create silences, to create acceptance of others, and it was really just spectacularly interesting. So the more I learned about it, just in that first personal experience, the more I read about it, and over the last 18 years, I've been really blessed to have a lot of good friends over the years in Japan. So they've taught me a lot. And how is it that you begin to practice acceptance versus this pursuit of happiness, which is what we tend to to be about? Here's the deal. I genuinely do not think that one culture has the edge over the others. I don't idealize Japan by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't 
idealize any, any culture for that matter. I don't, I, think, I don't think most people do. But you can take what they have there and add to what we're doing here. So if I were to have written this book for a Japanese audience, I would have written the reverse of it. I would have said you need to be more thoughtful about your own individual happiness. You need to think about what, what do you like to do each day as opposed to what do others like. But in terms of our culture here in the States, we're such a, in, in, in a general way, it's a very creative, vibrant culture that we live in in the United States. Things are always changing, no matter what, what side of the political spectrum you're on, things are always changing. And so in a practical way, what the Japanese do is they slow it down. So they do things like, you know, the famous tea ceremony, but it's not just tea. They, they take, if you go to a coffee salon in any one of the big cities, they'll take a long time for you to make, for them to make the coffee for you. Or even a cocktail is, it's a one ounce pour and it takes a while for them to make it. Or as I say, the tea, they also take baths every day. They take, they try to take naps a lot. And when you're with Japanese people, even old friends that I have there, there's as much silence in the engagement as there is talk. So they, they create spaces for people to observe. And the purpose of the observation beyond the practical stuff is to create a consensus. So for example, they're not really big on opinions. What they want to have is a situation where generally speaking, people there will come to some agreement, some consensus that we all are seeing the same thing or all are feeling the same thing. And the closest that I can think of it here in the States is Thanksgiving, where no matter, as I say, no matter, no matter what part of the political spectrum you're on, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, generally speaking, most American homes are we're all eating the same thing. We're all having similar conversations. And that's really kind of how the Japanese operated on a regular daily basis. There's a way in which there's this kind of conformity that creates an acceptance of others, whether you agree with them or not. And now I can see where that'd be a completely comforting, relaxing experience when you're there and you're in the midst of it. But how big of a culture shock is that when, when you go from our always on world and we've got to talk, we've got to fill that space with sound. And it's not about taking time. It's how much can we get done in this little time frame. So how big a culture shock is that when you go from the U.S. to Japan and start, start trying to live that way? So that's a, that's a really great question. And my friends have been very kind to teach me what to do. Really, truly kind. So what happens is you're supposed to, when you're in Japan guess a lot of what the other person is thinking or feeling. It's considered rude for the person to have to put it into words. So in Japan, in the, in the States in general, the bottom line is, is this a good deal? Is this a deal where I'm going to come out okay financially? Or am I going to come out feeling like this guy is someone I want to work with? And in Japan, it's more the reverse. It's, do I want to work with this person? Do I want to trust this person? And what you compare it to in the book that I wrote is the way a mother and a child or a father and a child interact. So when the kid is under three, there's not a lot of words exchanged. You sort of have to guess what the child is feeling. Things get done pretty quickly there because people there are very good at intuiting what the other person is feeling. I mean, on a really practical day-to-day -day level, people are very, very good at guessing. It's called reading the air. And you're supposed to be able to read the air between you and the other person. 
a friend of mine went to Japan to try to set up some kind of a big restaurant deal. And he had this big meeting and he wanted the Japan Airlines to fly over 65 people from his restaurant for free. And he goes to the meeting and they ask him, how was your flight? And how do you like Japan? And where are you staying? And all this stuff about for about an hour. And then they thanked him and he left. And he said to me, this guy's Mark. And I said, Mark, how did it go? And he said, I think I blew it because they never brought up the, uh, the deal I wanted to, to make with them. And he got an email from them like a day or two later and said, we want to work with you. We're, we'll pay for you the restaurant to come over, all 65 people. So the idea was, do I want to work with this person? You shouldn't have to tell the person what you want. They're supposed to guess it. So the culture shock part for me was, not telling people what I thought all the time. So when you, when I'll see, I'll see an old friend, my, you know, my friend Jiro and I'll greet him. It's a seven o'clock at night. And for the first 15 minutes, I'm not kidding. We'll just sit there and not talk. It's like, wow, what is this? Is he mad at me or what? And then after, <laughs> after 15 minutes, I'll turn to me, we'll say, Scott, I'm really glad that you made the trip over to see me. And then I'll say, I'm so flattered and so honored that you, you have me as your guest. And then there'll be more silence. And the idea is you're supposed to feel something for the other person. Things do get done, but they don't get done verbally. And again, it, it relates, the way I relate it to is the way a parent deals with, it, with a young child. And this is so foreign to us in, the, in this verbal, always going, paced world that we have. How is it? that living that way can help you reduce stress? Well, again, I mean, the, the, the really blessed thing about it, the really cool thing about it is that what I thought of when I first experienced, I got really kind of edgy. I thought, like I said, was the person mad at me? Had I said the wrong thing? Did I not say enough? My friends taught me protocol and they taught me things like, there are certain catchphrases that you will say and it creates almost a catechism. It almost creates a format for de-stressing. So as long as you can remember your lines, you're all set. It's similar to basketball or jazz in the sense that there's a framework and within that framework, you're allowed to improvise. It cuts down on a lot of stress because you know exactly what you're supposed to say and you know exactly when you're supposed to say it. And on a, on a cultural level, what helped me adapt to that was having kids of my own when they were much younger reminded me a lot of when my kids were little. And then the other thing was, as I say, it, it really de-stressed me because I didn't have to say anything. All I had to do was sit in silence. So if a person said something sort of controversial or scary to me, I didn't have to react to it. All I had to do was just say, yes, or that's interesting. I didn't have to give an opinion. It's, it's pretty unusual when I'm in Japan, for people to offer opinions about things. And that really cut down. It's interesting because when, I, when I'm back in the States and I'll go to a dinner, when we used to have dinner parties, when I would go to a friend's house. Back in the day. Back in the day in February, as long ago as February, I was at a friend's <laughs> house and she was talking about something and everyone at the table offered a different opinion about what it was that she had said. And I remember feeling very Japanese about it. I had just gotten back from Japan about a month earlier and I thought, how rude that people are offering opinions that differ from one another. In Japan, you're not supposed to do that. In Japan, you're just supposed to say, oh, that's interesting. That book you read must have been uh, important to you for, to share, for you to share it with us. You're not supposed to offer opinions. Now, the challenge for people doing business there or having relationships there is the guessing part is really tough 
it's also difficult to get people to speak up. And, you know, here in the States, when we're lucky and we work with people we either like or respect or have to listen to, there's a lot of brainstorming that goes on. It's like the best idea wins. And it's really hard at meetings there to get people to speak up and say what they think because they don't want to break up the group vibe. And groups in Japan are much more important than individuals. So I do some consulting there and we have these meetings once a month with Zoom and someone will say, so what safety measures do you think this hotel should put into place so that foreign guests will feel comfortable? And it's really quiet. And then, because I'm the so-called foreigner with expertise, Scott, what do you think? And I'll offer an opinion. And then everyone sort of mirrors my opinion, whether it's good or bad, because I'm the, the senior consultant. We don't really operate that way in the States in general. Everyone, I mean, not everyone, but in general, more brainstorming goes on here. So mm-hmm. that's the downside of it. The downside of it is that people are afraid to break up the, the group harmony. So... When you look at using this in the States, obviously the point of your book is to teach people about this practice and how they can use it. And as you've noted and and illustrated just in the stories that you've told, the way that they interact is very different. Like if I go into a meeting right now and they ask for an opinion and I just sit there, they're going to be like, what's going on over there? Like, does she just not engage? So how does someone then start learning these principles and using them in our current environment? I find that integration of the best of both cultures works. So in the 1890s, the Japanese sent around a delegation to all over the world, all over the world, because they did not have scientific institutions. They did not have advanced universities. They did not have a modern military, all that stuff. So they sent around this delegation all over the world. And they came back, this delegation, and from the states they came up with, oh my goodness, public transportation. In Washington, D.C., they have trolleys. And in England, they went, wow, a parliamentary monarchy. How cool is that? We can have a king or an emperor, but we can also have a parliament. And they came back from Prussia, and they said, wow, scientific institutions based on evidence and observation. We can, we can do that. So my argument with Japan is we should cherry pick their culture too. So when I go to a meeting in the States, I try to integrate what they have to say. So for example, I will do the very best I can to let everyone talk. And then I'll say something like, I wonder if I can offer an opinion, would that be useful at this time? Or if I'm interrupting someone, particularly because I'm a guy and there's a lot of mansplaining that goes on. I live with... (laughs) My wife is a physician. My daughter's a physician. So they kind of broke me in here. And so they, the idea is you don't want to interrupt the woman in the room. So I will, it's not like I'm such a bad guy or something, but it just comes naturally to me. That's how I was raised. So I will, I will find myself saying something like, I apologize for interrupting. Would it be okay if I said something now? And that, that goes a long way. That apology goes a long way to saying, I respect you. I'm not talking over you. So it's, it's integrating. So you're allowed, you, you offer the opinion but you're also saying to the other person, I respect you enough to, for you to say, no, I'm not ready to hear what you have to say. Why don't you respond to what I said before you tell me what you think? So if you integrate the two, it, it, it really works. And the other thing about teaching people this is it makes situations a whole lot less reactive. So th- those are the practical things, but in a more philosophical way, and I'm not a philosopher, but in a more philosophical way, the whole idea with this is two principles, which is how do I fit into nature and what does nature expect of me? So how do we fit into a situation? As I say, the Japanese are very involved in groups. So if I'm in a group in a work setting, 
how do I fit into this group? What does the group expect of me? And I try to see what I have to say in terms of what impact it will have on others in the room and, and to make that a chief consideration. So sometimes it's best not to say anything. It's best to think a little bit before and not to react, even though the person may have said something annoying or offensive. Take a deep breath and think about like, what is a more strategic way of handling this? The idea is to integrate practical principles and slowing time down, thinking about others, accepting the other's point of view as whether you agree with it or not, just accepting it as valid. And how does this work in relationships? Because we look at it in the work sense, but it seems like what an incredible tool in relationships. Can you kind of put it in that context, how it's, it's, it's helped? It's the coolest thing when it works. <laughs> it doesn't always work. But I find that two things. One is I find that apologizing a lot to the person I'm having an argument with, whom I might be married to, <laughs> goes a long way. I'm not I'm not suggesting my wife and I argue a lot, but when we argue, it's really good if, if I have the presence of mind to say, you know what, I was being disrespectful. I apologize. I'm going to listen to what you had to say. And I'm, it's not about me. It's more about listening to what you have to say and leave it at that. It slows things down. And the second part of that is that whatever it is, this is actually true. What, <laughs> whatever it is that is bothering me about the person I'm arguing with in an intimate relationship, whether it's a friend or a, or a spouse, my wife, chances are it has more to do or as much to do with me as it does with the other person. So if I'm having a stressful day, to be sure I'm going to be arguing with people more. So it's really important to keep that in mind that no matter what the other person is doing that's really annoying me, it's probably got a lot to do with me and much less to do with her or with him. That goes an incredibly long way. And it makes it temporal. So if I'm at a supermarket and someone cuts in front of me in line, just because they feel like it. <laughs> Back in the day, I would say, hey, you know, I'm standing there. Now I just, I just go, great, take it. How important are those five minutes? How important are those five minutes where I'm going to lose my temper or to say something that I'm going to regret? How does someone, someone who's listening to this, how do they start practicing this and, and learning how to embrace this? It's like learning a musical instrument or learning a language. So you have to practice it. And the, the word used is exactly perfect. You have to practice it every day. So for myself, it's, there was a French novelist and he said, the things that make the, the things, there's not that many things that make each one of us happy. It's always, it's usually the same things. So whatever it is that makes you happy, do more of them. So during this pandemic, for example, it's been, a, you know, like everyone else, I've been up and I've been down and every day is a little different, but every day is the same. So I've been trying to do things that practice the things that give me pleasure. So relating to the Japanese approach, I'm just practicing those things and trying to slow it down. So for myself, it's listening to music, walking my dog, cooking, writing, and reading. That's about it. So you have to practice it every day. And if today, Wednesday, doesn't work out more than 10 minutes, you got 10 minutes. So tomorrow, maybe you'll have 20. So in terms of the book, there are practical things people can do that create a way of life. It's not, the important thing to remember is that these practical ways of doing things are not secrets to happiness, but they can in fact create a way of seeing things in a way of life that, that really do fundamentally change you. So for myself on a practical level, I really try to do things that are slower. I do try to take more time to make a cup of coffee. 
I do try to take more time to cook. I do try to listen more and move slower, let's say, and just to try to enjoy the things as they are. And because of the pandemic, I don't think I've gone more than five miles from my house since March. And walking with the dog, I will see every day changes in a particular tree or in some shrubs or whatever. And it's not simple because if you allow this kind of thing to change the way you think and feel and to try to make it temporary, it's quite magical. I mean, the Japanese have this long, the most famous example is what we all think of as the cherry blossoms. And one of the reasons why the Japanese worship the cherry blossoms is because it's a really short term. It's like a two or three, four or five day thing. They do the same thing with fireflies. They love fireflies because they're not around very long. So if you can break things down into their little pieces, I find that you are one, is, one experiences less stress. It means not moving as fast. It means not looking at the big picture. It means not looking back. It means not looking forward. It's, it's the old story, you know, trying to live in the, in the moment. And it's very powerful when it works. This book is coming out at a great time because we do have some more time on our hands to explore different ways of living. What, what do you think the book can most offer people right now? I think that what's helped me a lot during this pandemic as I say, every day is a little different and every day is the same. But what's really, really helped me enormously is not to, th- not to think about myself. In other words, how can I be of more use to others? I have a few private clinical patients and they have underlying psychiatric disorders and they are suffering more than others who do not have underlying disorders. So if I'm stronger than others in my community, what can I do to be of help to them? I have, an elder, I have an aunt who's very healthy and robust. She's in her 80s. So I call her a couple times a week, ask her how she's doing. She's actually going to swimming classes. And she's, she's, out, she's out and about more than I am. But, and she's 100%. But I find that I feel better when I'm helping others. And it sounds really old-fashioned. But if you can realize that there's people, there's always somebody who needs your help more than you need help yourself. As I say, it's kind of old fashioned, but it actually works. And again, whatever's happening now, it's don't take it personally. I mean, and then the final thing is that it's, I have to remind myself every, on the bad days, this is temporary. It's really temporary. And when you think about the struggles of our parents and grandparents and the things they went through with all kinds of upheaval and war and whatever it was, our situation is a whole lot better than theirs. I mean, like a whole lot better. So whatever strength they had as our so-called ancestors, we can rely upon that. That's in us too. I find that really inspiring. So keeping it temporary, remembering that it's not about you, and then of try, trying to be of help to others, those are all principles of this Japanese approach. Excellent. Well, this has been been really enlightening because, again, it's a little bit different than any conversation that I've had <laughs> on this podcast. So it's always exciting to get a different approach to things. Thank you, Paul. I just love talking to you. That was Scott Haas, author of Why Be Happy, The Japanese Way of Acceptance, talking about the principle of ukureru. If you'd like to learn more about Scott and his book, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. And a reminder to bring a little bit of happiness to your workday every day with a Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. Just enable this as a skill on your Amazon device and start your morning by saying, Alexa, give me my Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. 
That's all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. Mm-hmm.